Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. New sponsor for this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Lemieux Company. Lemieux Company works to build better content and tell better stories through video. You can find Lemieux Company on Facebook, Instagram, and online at www.lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X dot company. So you may or may not know that I also write for a local magazine called Amarillo Magazine. It comes out every month. And our November issue featured multi-generational businesses. The cover story was about businesses that have you know, been around for decades and decades and have passed from one generation to the next. We talked to Amarillo National Bank, Wonderland Park, Bruckner's Truck Sales, businesses like that. Well, one local business that was not part of that feature story, but maybe should have been, was L.A. Fuller & Sons Construction. So in the 1940s in Amarillo, a man named L.A. Fuller opened a small dirt-moving business out of his home, and eventually his sons joined him in the work, and the business became known as L.A. Fuller & Sons. Well, today's guest is Mike Fuller, one of those sons. Now, he's currently in the process of passing along ownership and management to his own children, uh, which is the third generation. And Fuller & Sons has spent decades literally building Amarillo. I mean, Mike came to my house to record this episode, and when he got here, he said, I knew exactly where you lived because we built this street. Um, And I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last few months, Amarillo has been in a season of serious road construction. So Mike seemed the perfect person to talk to about this. We discussed how the business began, what Fuller & Sons actually does, and why Amarillo streets are suddenly so covered with orange traffic cones and heavy equipment. Okay, Mike Fuller, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I want to talk about Fuller & Sons. I want to talk about your family business. Uh, but before we get to that point, what I'd like to know is sort of your story, how you ended up here in Amarillo, how you ended up doing what you do. Well, I was born here, raised here, educated here, and really this outside of going to uh, school at Texas Tech in Lubbock, <laughs> And this has always been my home. Uh, it's where my dad chose to open his business and start his family. And what did you know um, as a kid? What did you know about the business, you know, the, the stuff that your dad did? Were you aware of what he did? Yeah, I was aware of it. My dad is a uh, an, is an interesting man, and, he, and his story is interesting. My dad was born in 1907. He was born before Oklahoma was even a state. We we used to kid him about being born in Oklahoma, and he would say, no, 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 I was born in Indian Territory. And he was. So you think about that just for a moment. He was alive during World War I, World War II. Uh, Too young for World War I, too old for World War II. But he lived through the dust storms. He lived through Prohibition. He lived through the Great Depression, uh, Korea, Vietnam, all of those things that are history to so much of us was actually part of his life. You were being, I was being raised by a man who had seen some of the most difficult times that this country had had as, as they were in their early stages of growing the country. And when you're raised by someone like that, the the values that they have are placed upon you. And I look back at it now, and I'm I'm grateful for it. When uh, my brother and I were kids, 
we go to a PTA and look around the room and everybody's parents were younger than our parents because my dad was in his 40s when I was born. So it was almost as if we were being raised by our grandparents from a generation standpoint. And those values that carried people through those things I've just mentioned, World War I, World War II, the Depression, all of those difficult times that this country had, my dad was living in that time. And so those, those values that he had were impressed upon me, and we tried, I tried to impress them on my kids. How did, how did he un, end up here in Amarillo? He was working on a railroad. Well, he was working building the railroad and, and the dirt work and that sort of stuff. He had traveled from all over. You just, you just had to go where the work was back in those days. It was difficult, particularly in that business, just to sit in one place and make a living. And so wherever a job would open up, that's where he would end up. And he ended up here one time and worked here. Uh, the railroad soon, soon began, began to become uh, less of an issue, and roads became more of an issue because the, the country was growing. And he had learned the trade of, of dirt work, working for the railroads, and he incorporated that into what he wanted to do. And he opened his business uh, in the 1940s in Amarillo, before I was even born. What was happening around the time when, when he opened in Amarillo? I mean, I, I know there was a period where the, the dirt roads started transitioning into asphalt pavement roads. I mean, was, was that around the same time? Well, not for him. Uh, and, and no, not completely. We're much more industrialized than we used to be. Uh, you know, you go back to the 1940s and you look at the number of cars on the road, uh, there weren't that many. The number of trucks, there weren't that many. People didn't automatically get a license when they were 16 years old like they do now and get an automobile. What he focused on was just doing dirt work. There was still a lot of farm, ranch land, he would build terraces, he would build dikes, uh, he would build dams. He, he liked moving dirt, and, and that later translated over into road building a few years down the road. Was that, um, that transition into road building, was that pretty soon after you got involved? Was it before you got involved? What, what's the timeline? Well, he was doing that before I got involved. One of the projects that he worked on in the 60s was uh, Lake Meredith. And Zachary, I believe, was actually building Lake Meredith. But there was a lot of other work going on at the same time. There was boat ramps, and he would do the dirt work for the boat ramps. Someone else would pour the concrete. There are five pump stations, if my memory serves me correct, that brought the water up from Lake Meredith and up to Amarillo. And then from Amarillo all the way down to La Mesa was gravity flow. But if you've been to Fritch Sanford Dam, you know that that's low. So the, he worked on those pump stations, uh, all the dirt work, the building. Uh, he did that, worked as a subcontractor for other people for several years. Was, was there ever a point where, you know, growing up, did, did you always have a sense that you were going to get into your dad's business? Or did you ever consider doing anything else? Oh, I, absolutely not. In fact, I did everything I could to avoid it. <laughs> my dad worked me and my brother like dogs. We were 13 years old. We were working. 
And all, some of that work I just described to you in, in Lake Meredith when we were working in summers, if we got off at Saturday at three o'clock, we thought it was a holiday. My dad was a six-day-a-week work guy, as were a lot of people back in those days. You worked six days, you went to church on Sunday, Monday you started all over again. You worked as hard as you could, as long as you could. Man, I really thought he was going to kill me. What kind of stuff did you do at, at 13? I mean, did you have shovels or were you using oh, yeah. heavy there, equipment there, or something? There, no, no, there was no glory in it. It was all physical labor. On the back side of uh, the dam, there's a, a bunch of rocks if you drive across the dam that have been placed on the back side. It was kind of erosion control. We had to put those rocks there. Now, this is a truth. I know it's not going to sound like the truth, but uh, the rocks were dumped. They were scattered out. But we, me and my brother would have to go in with sledgehammers and break some of those rocks. It was almost like prisoner work <laughs> uh, and push him around and push the rocks around. I mean, all I knew was just hard work. And so I decided at a fairly young age in high school, I don't think I want to do this. I was limited in what my vision should have been. And I decided I'm going to get an education and get as far away from this prisoner work as I possibly can. And so what what happened? How did you end up back to uh, busting rocks? As what happened was I went to Amarillo College two years. I transferred down to Texas Tech. I got my degree in the School of Agriculture. My de desire was to be a uh, wildlife biologist. I had a range in wildlife emphasis. What happened was during that time, the early 70s, Vietnam War was, was, was concluding and troops were being brought home. The war was de-escalating. And all of the funding was channeled in that direction to get these guys back. And there, there was very little government money for anything else. And the job that I wanted was a government job somewhere, a state biologist or, or federal. Well, they weren't hiring. Well, when nobody will hire you, you have to go to work. And so I graduated from college in December and uh, just about the time that I got home and got everything unpacked, I went back to work. Working for your dad as a teenager uh, versus working for your dad as an adult, you know, coming home from college, that's, that's a different experience. What was that like? It was. Uh, when I came back to work for my dad, he only had about four or five people working for him. My dad never really wanted to be a big contractor. What he wanted to do was bid a job, get a job, go do it, go to the next one, uh, just keep everybody working. That, that was really kind of his mindset, just keep your head down and work hard. And there was never any really real desire for him to become a big contractor. I have a younger brother. Uh, he passed away 12 years ago. He's a couple of, year, couple of years younger than I am, and he graduated from WT. And we started uh, looking at bigger work. Brother had an accounting background, and so he took over the, the estimating and bidding, and bigger projects were coming up, and so we would bite one off and, and tackle it and have some success, and then the next one come along, bite off a little bigger one and, and try it. And all, all this time that you're doing this, you're, you're hiring more people, you're buying more equipment. Now you've got 
more people to feed, more people to take care of. And so you just head that direction. And it wasn't overnight by any means whatsoever. It was gradual. <clears throat> work picked up and work was plentiful and some bigger jobs were being out there and we were capable of doing them. At the same time, you know, gaining experience on, on, the, on the business. I think the, uh, the good thing about it was there was absolutely nothing in the field that I didn't know no machinery that I hadn't run or how the job was supposed to be put together. I knew that because I had actually seen it from 13. As you get a little older, I think you begin to realize what you can be. And I think that's the vision that my brother and I had is that this is a, a good, solid company with a good reputation. My dad's an honorable man. We can take it to the next level. And so over a period of years, that's what we did. We just started doing more and more work. With, with your vision being so much more expansive than your dad's was, was, was that ever, I mean, did you have to talk him into that? Did you, did you work with him long enough to say, let's, let's think bigger? Or was never, he on board? I mean, was he just like, let's well, do it? I never sensed he wasn't on board. My dad was not the kind of guy that would, would just come up and, and pat you on the back and say, man, that's really a good guy. He just wasn't that generation. Now, you could tell that he loves you. You could tell that he respected you. But he wasn't a guy that handed out compliments and, and advice and counsel. The greatest lessons I learned from him were silent. Just, just what he did in certain situations, the way he reacted. I think he was on board. There was never any argument. There was never any fight. No, none of us got together and slugged it out. If we we're going to bid the next job, I think he had confidence in what we were doing. He just wasn't a guy that would express that verbally a lot. How long did, did he work before he retired? He never did really retire. Uh, he worked until his 80. And he didn't it's kind of an interesting story. We had a yard where we used to take debris and we'd bury it, old concrete and things like that. And we had a dozer over there and that pit always needed attending to. And so here's an 80 year old man. And he would go out and start that old dozer on a December morning and just push dirt over debris. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it was his job. And he took a great deal of pride in doing that. By that time, my brother and I were running everything. But by the same token, he was doing, like he always does, working and doing the best he could. You know, at, at this point where the business is today, you know, you guys have <clears throat> expanded into a company that, you know, works for the government, city governments, state. You work for the, you know, Department of Energy at Pantex. I mean, you guys do all kinds of stuff. And it's it's a much bigger operation. Can you tell me just a little bit, you know, not necessarily listing out your clients, but give me, give me a sense of the scope of what Fuller & Sons has done here in the Panhandle. I mean, I get a sense that most of the roads we drive on on a daily basis, you guys were part of the construction. Well, we're not the only road builders in Amarillo. And so uh, other companies have built roads. But you'd be hard-pressed to do much traveling in Amarillo and not come across one we've done. My dad, uh, I mentioned work at uh, Lake Meredith that he did. He also did the dirt work at the uh, Paladura Canyon where the uh, Musical Texas is presented every year. 
Several years ago, when uh, West Texas University built their new baseball field and softball field and athletic complex, a big project. We did all the dirt work on that one. Uh, we've done uh, streets in town for probably every developer all over town, north, east, west, south. We've worked on the Hillside Christian Church. Many few years, we, we worked at the prison when it was being built, uh, Benny Keith. So our, our stamp is really all over town. We worked for uh, the Department of Energy. We worked for the Air Force. We worked for the city of Amarillo. And we've done a lot of work in smaller towns, Canyon, Dalhart, Dumas, Miami, all the towns that surround the Panhandle. For people who you know hear the phrase "dirt work" and don't really understand what that entails, <clears throat> you know, in, in the road building process, explain to them, you know, just baseline. What what does that mean? Well, that's a term that's not used too much anymore. I mean, our we consider ourselves paving contractors now, paving and utility contractors, and that's kind of the title we go by. But no matter what you do before you build something, you've got to move dirt. Uh, you've got to get it down to a proper grade. Sometimes you have to import dirt to, to build a building up. Sometimes you have to cut out dirt to get to a certain elevation. Uh, and that's really just the first pro process is that you, you, when you start a job, is you clear the site and you move the dirt. And from that point on, a lot of stuff happens. You know, a building is built, a road is paved, a dam is built. And so it's 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 a term that's, like I said, it's not used a lot anymore, but you've always got to move the dirt. Tell me about the dirt in this area. I mean, is is there anything unique or challenging about it? You know, we, we hear so much about dust storms. You know, you, you talk about the settling and stuff that happens with the, the variations in the weather. I mean, how does that impact your job? Well, it impacts a lot because we have a multitude of different types of dirt. To most people, dirt is dirt. But I think everybody understands there's a difference between sand and a, and a big fat clay that you could make pottery out of, the difference between pleachy and rock. And so all of those different types of dirt exist in this part of the country. And each one of them comes with its own unique set of circumstances. It's not that any of them are good or bad. Some of them are bad in cer certain circumstances and some of them are good. In other circumstances, if you get an area that's too sandy, well, you cannot build a house or dirt or a road on it. It has to be stabilized some way. Dirts that have uh, high clay, and we do have some of those, those dirts that, uh, from like a from Playa Lake, those dirts tend to move around a lot. And if you put a building on them, then they're going to move and the concrete's going to crack, the walls are going to crack. And so nowadays, uh, with difference in, in technology, equipment, and chemicals and engineering, uh, when you go to a job and move dirt, it's, some, it's not just as simple as moving it. Uh, sometimes you have to get rid of the bad dirt and bring in better dirt. Or you have to take that dirt that's there and stabilize that dirt and make it more acceptable for whatever project you're going to build. And this is this is a period, I guess a season in Amarillo where everybody's really aware of road construction. It seems like we've had a ton of big projects going on, you know, various degrees of impatience with it or annoyance with it. And 
what 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 do we not realize uh, you know in addition to you know the different types of dirt and what what it takes i mean building a road or preparing to build a road is a huge task and has a bunch of different factors so what what do we not understand about what's happening there i think what we do don't understand or we fail to recognize it's for many, many years, at least from the Texas uh, Highway Department, Amarillo got very poor funding, particularly compared to the metropolitan areas. Uh, if you've been to Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, you've always find construction. I mean, I've never been through Dallas when I didn't come across it in the past 20 years. That's where their money was focused. It always makes you happy to come back to Amarillo because was, you don't have to go through that. Right. You And now we're going through right. it. Right. <laughs> that's why everybody's so, what's happening So we, we go there and get mad and we come back and we're mad. What has happened is that some of that funding has shifted. And some of it has been shifted because of they have done some research uh, on some of the bridges in Amarillo and found that they're, they're falling down. Well, you can't let one fall down before you decide to replace it. And so over the past two or three years, we have seen a great deal of money come into Amarillo for road construction. And this is the, the highway department's money. That, that's the reason. We, we've gone from a place that we were almost starved. Years ago, the amount of money that we might get for this particular district Today, one of, just one of these jobs that's been going on is more times than that. So it's kind of like we're catching up. I yeah, think. It's, it's not just that we decided let's do a whole bunch of construction, but it's fixing things that have needed to be fixed. It's for fixing a long time. things, and I don't think that there's anybody that's driven in or lived in Amarillo would argue that our loop is a pretty poor excuse for a loop. Uh, stop signs, schools, churches, and 55 miles an hour in some places, 75 in some places, and even down to, in a school zone, you know, 25 or 30. And a lot of that on the south side is now being rectified where the people won't won't have to stop, won't have to slow down, and the loop will be more of a true loop. There's going to be an expansion of the loop in the future that's going to take it farther than Sauncy. And so a few years down the road, uh, we're going to have a, a loop that's, not exactly equal to the one in Lubbock, but it'll it'll be a lot closer, uh, and that'll move traffic a lot quicker. Most things you look back five years from now and you go, "I'm glad they did that." Let's talk about the, uh, I guess the the present day status of your company and and maybe the future. You know, you uh, your brother passed away a few years ago. You guys were partners, but at this point, you know, leadership is passing on to the third generation, and when you have a family business like that, you know. Passing the reins from one generation to another is always a little bit tricky. So you've been through that with your dad. Um, now you're going through that now um, you know, with the next generation. What's, what's that like for you? Well, my brother and I had a unique relationship. And here again, I, I go back to my parents to give them credit for that. Uh, you just keep your head down and you work hard. If something goes wrong, you work harder. You try to figure a way to figure it out. There was really no animosity between me and my brother, and we shared the same values, morally, ethically, spiritually. Uh, from a business standpoint, we both wanted the company to grow. And not that we didn't ever disagree, but we had those goals in mind. And so we worked well together. And a lot of families can't say that. A lot of brothers uh, don't get along as well as we did. We were 
We were friends besides just being brothers. And we had always prepared, like everybody else, that when we get to be 100 years old, we'll die. And that didn't happen. He passed away at 54 with cancer, which left it basically in my hands. At that time, well, still now, I had I had four, I had four sons. Uh, a couple of them were still in college. A couple of them were out, and they were working for the company. And they had worked for they had worked for the company just like I had. When they were thirteen years old, I took them to work. Her mama didn't like that too much, but that's the way things happen. Did they have to break rocks, or did they get to? <laughs> it wasn't quite that severe, but they they did labor. Anything that. I have a strong belief that it's hard to build something if you don't know how to do the work. And I really never did care that if they chose to enter this work or not. That was their choice. But I wasn't going to let them get by with not knowing what work was. They worked when they were 13. Now, they couldn't go on a job because of their age, but they worked at the shop and, and they washed parts and they... They cleaned up trash, and they did all of those labor jobs. As they got a little older, they went to the field, and here again, they didn't get on a piece of equipment right away. They had to learn how to shovel and use hand tools, and then that graduated up to small pieces of equipment and then eventually to larger pieces of equipment. So they may not be an expert uh, in all of the different kinds of equipment, and we have some operators that are really far better than I was or my sons were, but they know how to build something. And they're not fooled by just looking at something. I've, I've been there. I've done that. Well, when my brother passed away and everything was under my control and they were working for us, uh, it just kind of seemed to naturally head that direction. I think that they realized that the opportunity was there. And it was... It's what they knew also. The transition to third generation is much more difficult than the transition was to second generation. Why is that? Well, you have I have four sons that are brothers, but they're completely different. They have wives, and their wives are all completely different. They have children, and their children are completely different. And you get so many more people involved. And it was just me and my brother. Okay, now there's two folks that need to hammer something out. Now, all of a sudden, there's four. And being able to divide the pie up, divide the responsibilities up to try to put someone where their strengths were and let them lead in that direction, it's, it's just not that easy to do. How, how involved are you at this point for, in the day-to-day? -day? I mean, are you still... Consider yourself full-time or have you? Oh, yeah. I, I work every day. I, I will be honest. My, my sons do the heavy lifting. And uh, they've got to the point that uh, if something happened to me, they could handle it. They, they actually have ownership in the company also. When my brother passed away, we were unprepared. Not completely, but to a certain extent. And he was the the visible one of the company. He was. Uh, he worked in the office. He met with the engineers. He met with the city. He met with the bonding company, the insurance company, all those things that are tied to business. And I ran everything in the field. And so uh, when you thought of Fuller and Sons, he might be the first one you would think of because I wasn't that noticeable. And when he passed, all of a sudden, 
all of that changed, and I had I had to become the the visible eye of Fuller and Sons and leave those responsibilities of running work and try to get better at the responsibilities of being a businessman. That was a long, slow process. I was, was going to make sure that if anything happened to me after living through that, that when my time comes, when the Lord calls me home, the company will go on. Tell me a little bit, you know, it, it sounds like your your dad sort of ended up in Amarillo, you know, just kind of that's that's the way his path led him. You know, it, it wasn't a, um, you know, a real deliberate sort of decision, but you guys have chosen to stay here. You've chosen to build the business here, to expand the build business and make this your base. Is, is there something about Amarillo that, that you can identify that has made that possible? I mean, is is it the, the community here, the opportunity here? I mean, what what is it that allowed you guys to build this business? Well, it's really all of those. Uh, this is my home, and it's really all I know outside of a couple of, of couple of times when I lived in Lubbock, going to school. And then about four years ago, my wife was a cancer patient, and she was undergoing treatment at MD Anderson, and we had to live in Houston. It made me real sure that I don't want to work in Houston. But Amarillo's home. Uh, I know the community. I know the town. I, I know the people. And I like the people. I like the work ethic. Uh, I like that people, for the most part, will look you in the eye and, and, and you can get an honest answer. And you can't find that everywhere. I like the climate. It's a good place to work. The economy is strong. We do not have the ups and downs that some people have. If you were to go to the Permian Basin, it's it's either feast or famine. It's not that way in Amarillo. Uh, even when things are not really all that grand from an economical standpoint, we don't seem to suffer as much as other folks do. Uh, we may not hit as many highs as they do, but we don't hit as many lows either. And there's been times that we have been low on work in years past, but we've never been out of work. I like that. There's a st- I think there's a stability that's here from uh, a lot of different factors, from leadership factors in, in the community and conservative values and positive leadership. And so we remain diversified, our economy, yet it's still strong. So if you listened to last week's episode, you heard Megan Seymour mention some of the local talent doing amazing work in the advertising industry, and she specifically mentioned Wilson Lemieux. I'm honored to have Lemieux Company as the presenting sponsor of this episode. Lemieux Company is a video-first marketing company focused on creating content that evokes emotion and provokes action. Whether it's a 30-second spot or a branded short film, Lemieux Company digs deep to gather a thorough understanding of your target audience and the story you want to tell. Combining that understanding with a track record of beautiful storytelling and compelling visuals generates a project that in turn generates results. Find Lemieux Company online at www.lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X. Lemieux Company, better content, better stories. Okay, we're back with Mike Fuller of L.A. Fuller & Sons Construction. Mike, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight, very specific questions. And your job is to answer in as much detail as you'd like. 
So let's start. What is your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? Well, that's hard. I don't really have a favorite restaurant. Uh, it's kind of a good thing this is a podcast, not, not a video, because people could look at me and say, man, there's a guy who knows a lot about food. <laughs> <laughs> He's been in a lot of restaurants. Uh, I have a favorite steak place. I have a favorite Asian place, a, the favorite place to, that I like to eat breakfast. But I'm going to tell you the place that I go to more than any place else, and that's La Frontera on Arthur Street. We have been there so many times that the wait service knows my name. They know the names of my children. They're beginning to learn the names of my grandchildren. They don't even hand us a menu anymore. They just start writing stuff down. And I really believe that they could probably fill every one of our menus and never say a word. I think it's a great place to eat. Is that, uh, is that close to where you guys are headquartered? You, but it's on the east side of town. It's not real close to our office, okay. but it is on the east side of town, right off of uh, uh, 10th Street down on Arthur. I've had breakfast there a number of times. Um, really good breakfast. They're, they're good folks. You, uh, you're so involved with the streets of Amarillo, um, you know, whether <laughs> building them or moving the dirt before they get built. I, I wanted to know if, if you have a favorite street in town. No, I do not have a street. Favorite street. Is that like naming your favorite children or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're all uh, equally good. I don't fall in love with any street that we build, but I do have a part of town that I like, and that's East Amarillo. I was raised in, on the east side. I went to uh, Sunrise Elementary. I went to James Bowie Junior High School. I graduated from Caprock High School. My brother built his home over on the east side of town. It was built by the Caprock Building Trades Program. I go to church on the east side of town. Our office is on the east side of town. And I think there's just so much history over there with the air base, uh, Potter County Stadium, uh, Tri-State Fairgrounds. I like the people. I like the culture. Uh, I like the work ethic. They're just common, decent folks that... Are trying to make a life, and I like the east side of town. There's, there's a, um, I guess what happens a lot is you have a lot of industry on the east side, um, but as people become more successful and <clears throat> begin building homes and stuff, I mean, that growth sort of takes place to the south and to the west, generally with with the city. Absolutely, the closing of the Air Force Base probably killed the east side as far as the city moving that direction. And a lot of the homes that were over in the Sunrise District were occupied by people affiliated with the Air Force. They began to lose, move. That, that area of town became vacant. And the, as Amarillo began to grow, it began to grow to the, uh, the south and the southwest. There hasn't been a lot of new divisions over there. One over Trade Winds has, uh, has, has started a few years back and seems to have done real well. And uh, I, I like seeing that. But, you know, when I die, they'll bury me in Lano Cemetery on the east side. On the east side. <laughs> what does Amarillo have too much of? Well, I hope I'm wrong, and I very well could be. I hope that Amarillo doesn't have or is not building too many hotels. I think a few years back, we kind of got in that situation. And I know that when that happens, people start losing money, buildings start closing, and things don't work so well. I don't know that we have too many of them, 
And it's a it's a testament the number of hotels to the traffic that comes through city, the city on a daily basis down I forty. It's 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 almost unimaginable if you were to look at some of the statistics that done the number of people that come through here on our I forty is is almost unbelievable. I mean thousands and thousands and thousands, and yeah, a lot of them stop and they have to eat, and that's a good thing. I'm all for building as many as we can as long as there's a need. What does Amarillo not have enough of? This is kind of a passion for me, and I think that we are sorely lacking in trade schools, and I don't think it's just an Amarillo problem. And that's due to partly because of unemployment. I believe Amarillo has the lowest unemployment value in in the state of Texas, but everybody needs help. And people in my business, not not just the paving business, but people in the construction business, electricians, carpenters, roofers, all of those craftsmen, they're crying for help. They can't find any help. I'd read where that out of every 100 kids that started college, only 19 would graduate. So 81% of all college freshmen are going to enter, enter the workforce with some college. Now, that doesn't include those that just chose not to go to college at all or chose to go to the workforce, or the military, rather. So we have all these people that need to work, and we have no way of training them with a trade that they can make a really good living at. And I think that's one thing that we, have, we really need, uh, an organized way to persuade young people that there's a lot of good jobs out there. I have a great deal of respect for first responders. I do. You know, my house catches on fire and the firemen come and put it out, I'm going to be eternally grateful. If I'm in a car wreck and an ambulance comes and picks me up, I'm going to be eternally grateful. But the truth of the matter is, they couldn't get there as quickly as they could if there wasn't a road. They couldn't get to that accident without an overpass. They couldn't put out that fire unless they could tie into a fire plug and a water system that had been put in the ground by a craftsman. So all of these things are symbiotic. You know, we need each other. We need to train and open uh, doors and opportunities for some of these, many of these folks that don't want to go to college because there's a lot of good trades and skills out there available for a person. And that's something that we, we lose sight of a little bit. I've, I've had this conversation before. You know, when there's such an emphasis, you know, maybe at schools like Caprock or schools on the the east side, you know, to get kids to go to college. When that's great, you know, a four-year degree is great. Certain personalities do better with that. But, you know, you can build a really good life by learning a trade, whether you're a plumber or an electrician. And that's that's not often a four-year, you know, requirement. That's something that you can learn in a shorter amount of time. But the wages for some of those jobs are just as good as you would get, you know, as a you know, a business person or right. somebody working for a company. And we haven't even discussed the fact that there's so many kids go to school and once they get out with a college education, they can't find work and they're left with a staggering debt that's going to take them years to pay off. The, the honest truth is that college is not for everyone. I don't have anything against college education. I have one. My sons have college educations. We are sorely lacking in craftsmen and tradesmen that can work with their hands. When your roof blows off, you're not going to call a doctor or a lawyer. You're going to want a good roofer. 
we need to realize that all that work is honorable work, not look down on it and respect respect that guy that's unplugging your sewer line. Anytime I, I try to do do-it-yourself projects at home, I end up with a newfound respect <laughs> for people that make that look really, really easy. <laughs> All right, this is a question I've asked of, of some past guests. Uh, when was the last time you ate at the Big Texan? You mentioned you had a favorite steak place. Is, is, is that on the list? It's been a while since I've ate at the Big Texan. Can you remember the last time you did? Not really. Okay, <laughs> but you have been there. Oh, yes, okay. I've been there. What's your favorite weekend activity? I'm an active person. I'm not going to sit around the house and do nothing and lay on the couch and watch television all all weekend long. I I just cannot do that. I like to do things. I like to uh, I like to work in the yard. I like to fix things around house. During football season, I go down to Lubbock. I have Texas Tech season tickets. I haven't enjoyed that the past couple of years as much as I had. And then I, you know, on Sunday I go to church and I like I like the uh, fellowship with uh, fellow believers and staying busy. We uh, we talked a little bit about the business climate here, but tell me, I mean, as as a business owner, as somebody who's who's run a business for decades at this point, I mean, what makes Amarillo a good place to, to run a business? I think it was the, the very same thing I said earlier. I, I think the very best thing about Amarillo is the stability of the economy. I've seen it low, but not desperately low. You know, you've uh, you've read stories about people that are in a, that have built homes in Odessa Permian area when the old prices are high, and then a year later they're they're laying on the streets in tents. We we haven't experienced that, and so I, I think the stability that uh, the highs are never too high that you can't do it, and the lows are never so low that it's just desperation. And then last question: What regular Amarillo event do you look forward to most? I don't really have an event, but I do have a period of time, a season I look forward to. I look forward to the spring when daylight saving times changes and we get longer days. I like that. That gives me the opportunity to go uh, watch baseball games or go to softball games, watch my grandkids play. It gives me the opportunity to stay outside longer, to cook out longer, to have family outings, and there's not much better place to look in Amarillo than late in the evening when that sun's going down, and you think, this is really a cool place to be. How much is that tied into your your business, too? I mean, does that mean you guys can get more work done when it's not well, freezing that, temperatures that's and true. snowfall? I mean, that's or? true. Uh, you can work longer hours. That's that's a benefit to an hourly employee. They they can make better money in the summer than they can in the winter, so that that's a benefit to them. And uh, because there there will be those days in January and February that we won't do much of anything, and you have to reflect back upon the the work weeks that were sixty and sixty five hours, and hope they save something for those days. And then uh, at at the end of the episode, I just like to ask my guests to endorse something. So what is what is something about Amarillo that you just want to tell other people about? <clears throat> The people that are going to listen to this know it. I think Amarillo is a great place to live. I think it's a great place to raise a family. You can educate your children here. Amarillo College is here. West Texas University is here. We do have some schools that, you know, some dental hygiene schools, and there's uh, some mechanic schools that Amarillo College. There, there's opportunities here to, to make a life. There's a, a good place for spiritual education. There are plenty of churches in Amarillo. Sometimes I'll, I'll look at people 
or meet people that's on a trip or something. They'll ask me where I'm from. And I say, I'm from Amarillo. They just kind of roll their eyes back in their head. You know, like, it's like I said, I live in Antarctica. They just don't know. And I think, I think we're kind of a hidden jewel. Most people just and throughout the country just really doesn't know what a good place this really is. But I, I endorse Amarillo. Okay. <laughs> overall, everything. Oh, is, overall. That works. Mike, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. And that concludes another episode of Hey Amarillo. Thank you so much for listening. I want to especially thank Mike Fuller for being my guest today and also Lemieux Company for sponsoring the episode. And thanks to you for listening. If uh, you'd like to find more about Hey Amarillo, go to heyamarillo.com. You can listen to past episodes. You can read a little bit about me. You can find links to subscribe using any sort of various podcast apps. Um, Interact with us online at Hey Amarillo on Twitter and Facebook. Leave a review on Facebook. Encourage your friends to follow the Facebook page. Leave a review at iTunes. Um, Whatever you can. Help spread the word. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.